0: My name is Susie Can and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. coming on to the next chapter in the story that I wrote all those years ago, and I'm revisiting it now to explore what I was trying to write about as a quite amateur writer, but also what has changed in my thinking that this story was, I suppose, a teaching, a pedagogical story, really something that I use as an educator and as a communicator, and previously as an art therapist, that the idea of metaphor or stories is something that is a way to communicate a truth. And we remake our stories and we tear them apart and we turn them into new stories. And that's really the basis for human culture, for our understanding of the world and our understanding of each other and even the understanding of our identity. And so I suppose as I revisit this story, I'm seeing what things seemed important to me when I wrote it and which of them still do and which of them, in fact, I've torn down since in my thinking and remade. And as I visit this once more, I'm thinking about that. And I, as I come back in this episode, we're coming back to the first character, Jules, the girl who is, in my mind, a descendant of somebody like Judith Ode up in Donegal. And I'm doing a lot of work at the minute up in Donegal, actually reconnecting with people in places that I've known since childhood. And it is one of those heartlands for me. Of a soul place, a place that when I'm there, if I get to stand on a beach or a cliff and feel the wild Atlantic coming at me, I think it it just does something for me and I, I it returns me to something in myself. And I know that people seem to have that connection to some sense of place and often it is somewhere you knew in childhood. And one of the things that In the character of Jules is that association for me with the wisdom of land and the wisdom of intuition and dreams and heart intelligence and imaginal realms and the kind of Celtic understanding of thin places and ideas and and rhythms like rhythms going around the moon follow the energies and trying to pay attention and I suppose in some ways it's the counterpoint to the over-rationality and the over-reliance on, on logic and purely rational thought and not the world of emotion and intuition and in my time that is also a balance between what was for me growing up a patriarchal environment and a patriarchal Ruled world. And it's something that I'm writing about in this book is the different aspects of that existing within different genders, but just the primacy of different ways of knowing and the balance, the need for both, not throwing one out or the other. And so in this next chapter that I'm going to read, Jules is getting messages, tuning into intuitions, and Has faith in that. And so I enjoy kind of her character's absolute support from her lineage and support of what it must be like to grow up with that skill honed and practiced as much as we practice any other skill. So going into the chapter now. It had been two weeks, but the vision of the boy on the road and the river kept coming back, and each time it it was slightly different. But it was clear he was someone important in her journey. She felt sure it wasn't going to be years before she might come to meet him, like her mother had said, but she was also sure he was coming to her. Now, drawing closer each day, she prepared the ritual as usual. The sun was warm again today after the spring storms of the last few days. She and her mum had hoped that her father was safe in port or on his way home. She shook any anxiety away and focused on her tasks, relaxing into the familiar rhythms. The vision started. She recognized his presence now before she saw anything. She knew his face as if he was from the village, no longer a stranger. This time she saw that there was a great horse ahead of him. And then, again, as a bird-like spirit he flew towards her. She saw him stop and stand by a river. She felt something. Knew, she knew this water. It was familiar. Knowledge dawned. It was her water. She was sure that it was the river that ran through her place. Her heart quickened, and she felt herself being pulled from the trance by the recognition of something so tangibly connected to her, to the water of here and now. But then... Just as the last images faded, she saw something happening. The boy, a commotion, and the sound of a thud, and then he was falling, falling into. Jules sat bolt upright. Her heart was now pounding. She looked to her right as the river falling away into the valley, and then she was up and running and leaping along the banks downhill. A short while later, she streaked into the farmyard and ran into the cottage. Her mother looked up startled. Mum, there's someone, something. I've got to go to the valley. Jules, what on earth? What's happened? Jules was too agitated to answer at first. Jules, her mother took her by the arms. Jules, Jules, stop. I've never seen you like this. I can't explain now, Mum. I've got to go. I just have to. Can I grab some food and a few things to put in a pack? It might take me a while. Her mum nodded, as unable to stop Jules as if she was a thundering waterfall after a flood breaks through a bank, and before she could even try to speak, Jules was grabbing her backpack and shoving things into it, a blanket, some food, and a few of her mother's tinctures. Jules, what's this all about? She finally managed to ask. I can see you have to go, and I will let you. You're old enough. But your communal ritual is only days away. And you're more than ready, but please tell me a bit more before I'll need to be able to rest easy while you're gone. Jules knew she owed it to her mother to give an explanation, but she couldn't even begin to explain it to herself. I think someone's coming who needs my help, and I've been having visions about it for nearly two weeks. But you never... um I know, but you told me not to. I'm sorry. I couldn't explain anyway. And I still can't, but I know I've got to go. Okay, okay, I can see that. But stop for one second, slow down, listen to me carefully. It can take a long time to fully understand a vision, and clear and quick witted as you've shown yourself to be throughout your learning time, you have to know there can be false paths. Well, not totally false as we know it's all unfolding as it should, but you have to make choices and you can choose the easy way. Be careful. Is this the only course of action? Reevaluate now. And if you think you must go again, then when you meet this person, they're only meant maybe as a lesson in patience and not a long-term teacher or a soul connection. I didn't say I thought they were, ma'am. No, I know but I see it in your eyes. You haven't looked this excited since you were three and found a robin half dead from the cold and nursed it back to life. You turned to me and had just the look you have now. Mum, how did you... Just go. Don't forget your ceremonies in three days. Be back well in time. I don't think I'll be gone that long. No, but just in case, remember. Jules threw a few more bits in the pack kissed her mother fondly, and ran out down the river track towards the valley. By afternoon it was getting quite warm. Jules had tied her top and jacket about her waist. Her pack and her hair were dripping down her back. She'd stuck her hair in the river a few moments before, just to cool it off a bit. The river's voice kept changing, keeping her company as the terrain became flatter and she entered the valley. Another tributary joined their route from the right, and she was able to get across a plank to the main village road running along the widening river. She followed its course, leaving it only briefly as she'd hurried through the village, warding off curious greetings with an overly friendly wave-and-shrug-and-mustache look about herself. The road ran along the river again and she picked up her pace here, and the going was easy. She snacked as she walked and picked a few leaves to munch, hawthorn from the hedgerows and ramsons from underneath it, strong flavours that kept her alert and stimulated. But now she watched as the sun began to sink and wondered what time it might be and whether she'd find him before she'd have to make camp. The river gurgled at her side. Around the next bend, she saw it, and in the dusk, she couldn't decide if she'd slipped into her vision in tiredness, or whether she was really seeing that horse. It was ahead on the road coming towards her. As it got closer, her breath increased, and she thought she could make out a shadow of a boy behind the horse. But then there was a screech, and she was startled by a huge face and a flash of white flying over her. Then it was gone. A barn oil, she realized, when she recovered herself. Spirit messenger. The horse slowed as it reached her, and she could see the caravan it pulled. There was no sign of the boy. Easy, fella. She stroked its huge head. It seemed pleased to see her. Hello, she called into the interior of the caravan but she sensed it was empty. What's happened em? him? she asked the horse. She leaned her head against its forelock and listened with all her senses. Her stomach felt fear, and her heart, well, it seemed like the horse mirrored her concern for a friend, one not too well connected with either of them yet, but familiar. Her mind saw images, something moved out of sight of the horse, but it was startled, it took off, and she thought she heard a splash. She lifted her head and looked towards the river. Did that come from just now, or was that what the horse heard when it was startled? She listened, but there was no more noises coming from the river. She stroked the horse and whispered to it, and slowly turned it back the way it had come and pulled it to a halt. She looked at the back of the wagon and found a nose bag hanging with a small amount of oats and a bucket too. She hung the nose bag on the horse and took the bucket down to the river for some water. A little while later, she found that persuading the horse to set off again, back the way it had come after its short meal, wasn't difficult. They plodded along together. She had a pretty good view of the river from up in the driver's seat and the nearly full moon was rising slowly reflecting on the river's calm surface three days she thought looking at it she didn't know how many hours passed but she must have fallen asleep the lack of movement woke her as the horse had pulled off the track onto some grass and was munching It was obviously used to midnight snacks, still harnessed to its load. She slipped down beside it and walked towards the river. There were signs of a recent camp. Some clothes had been hung to dry on the overhanging trees, but had been left there as no one was in sight. She walked to the water's edge and gasped. There, in the soft mud, were signs of something, a pattern of chaotic footprints. It looked like someone had either stamped all over the mud patch or two people had performed a strange dance. She extended her senses and the answer was immediate. A fight! She looked out over the river, but there was nothing. Scouting around the camp, she could see no other clue as to what happened here. She was exhausted. The moon had gone behind some cloud cover. It was dark. No use. She'd have to get some sleep and wait for morning light to see what she could do next. The horse only took a few paces forward when she released it from the heavy harness and tied him to a tree. She left him and climbed under the caravan and rolled out her blankets. It felt too strange to sleep inside it, but she might as well use it for shelter, although it seemed too high a cloud cover for rain but she knew how quickly that could change around here. She was wakened by a loud sound above her head. He's back, was her first thought, but then she heard voices and the sound of things being thrown about. It's a piece of right luck that stupid horse turning back here. He's just, someone's done that unless you think it's turned itself loose all by itself. Well, Mr. Cleverdick, let's get cracking before they come back. Where the hell do you think it could be? Keep looking. It's got to be in here somewhere. The lads stopped what they were doing when a strange noise came from outside. It sounded otherworldly, and there was a slow, steady knocking from underneath them. The sound grew louder, high, singing like moaning. Jesus wept. What the hell? It's him, it's his ghost. Come back first. Fuck me, I think you're right. He's called the horse back here to lure us. The noise turned into an impossibly higher pitch and the knocking got faster. Let's get the hell out of here. There's nothing here anyway. Jules heard them fall over each other as they fought to get past and out the door. She giggled. Climbed out of her hiding place, but she was immediately worried with the thought that they'd believed the noise she was making to be his ghost. They thought he was dead. No, she was sure that wasn't possible. Everything in her knew he was alive, and she'd learned to trust her knowing because one part of that steady belief actually made what she really knew much more likely. She knew her nanny would have called it the power of prayer while her mum called it positive thinking. Her mind leapt back to this morning and her mother mentioning the robin. Did her mother know? What was she telling Jules? Things she too had felt, sensed or visioned. So what should she do next? Too many questions. She tried to calm herself. She decided to re-hitch the horse. Dawn was creeping over the river and in the growing light, she noticed something she'd not seen in the dark. There was a distinctly shaped patch of yellowed grass near the river. A boat, she'd realised, had lain here until very recently. She saw drag marks leading to the water. She looked at the river's current, and suddenly she had it. The lad's voices she heard. It must have done something to the boy. When he was in the boat, she'd better hurry. She must search downstream. She threw her blankets up into the caravan and set the horse back onto the road at a trot, watching all the time for a sign of anything on the river. She heard something and realised, before they got there, that was fast-flowing water, even rapids ahead. She jumped down from the caravan and walked beside the horse scanning the banks. The road sloped and pulled away from the river, and the woodland brush became denser, making it hard to see. She'd have to backtrack. When they reached level ground again, Jules led the horse off to the side and tied it to a branch. Then she climbed the hill and cut in through the brush to the bank. The rapids weren't as bad as she'd imagined, but it was hard going along the bank, and she took her time, wary of falling. As she neared the bottom, she found part of an oar lodged between two rocks. Then she saw it. A prow of a boat, half submerged, stuck out of the far bank. She had to work hard to overcome an immediate surge of panic. She stopped. She couldn't see him in the boat or on the bank. She shouted hello a few times and listened. There was no answer. She looked up and down the river, trying to figure out a crossing place. It looked like there were enough rocks to use as stepping stones at the top of the rapids but there was a large gap where the boat must have been able to pass through and she didn't know if she could get across it. She ran back to the horse and took it out of its harness. Finding some bindings, she hobbled it. She knew she might not be able to get back right away and she wanted it to be able to wander far enough to graze. She grabbed her pack and made sure her knife and tinctures were inside. She had a few provisions to add, but she stuffed in a blanket from inside the caravan And a pair of trousers and a jumper she'd found. Then she went back to the rear of the caravan and lifted a large coil of rope off a hook she'd noted it earlier. She hurried back up the road to the top of the rapids. Jules set down her pack and looked around for a small, thick branch. There were trees on the other side of the river, too, and she hoped she'd be able to reach them. She tied a suitable branch to the end of the rope and then recoiled it. Then she made her way out onto the rocks, working out to the farthest one. She steadied herself on it and looked across for a tree with a good forking branch. She threw the rope and to her amazement got it in first shot. The thick branch lodged perfectly in the fork of the tree on the far bank. Working her way back with the rope, she climbed another tree and tied off her end of the rope. Then she cut a section of the rope off the end, made a figure of eight loop, over the rope, long enough to hold from the ground. She climbed down and went in search of some small fallen tree trunks. She found a birch that looked long enough and dragged it to the river. It was hard work, but with some balancing and tugging, she was able to lift it vertical and drop it over the river between the two rocks. She looked at it, worried it wasn't enough to carry her weight, and went back to the woods to repeat the process twice more before she was satisfied. She wouldn't be much use to the boy if she fell in, she reasoned. Finally, she was ready. She put on her pack and got hold of the loop hanging down from the tree rope. She swung a little on it to check it was secure enough, and then she started across the first few rocks, reaching her improvised bridge with ease. It wasn't that large a distance to cross, but just too far and deep with the fast water below to jump safely. She was cautious as she made her way out on the trunks. She was only just fully onto them when one of them rolled away from her foot, causing her to pull hard on the rope to regain her balance. She cursed as she kicked the branch, and it fell off the far rock, sticking out one end in the river now. "'Maggots!' she said. "'I'm thick. I should have bound the end, at this end at least, on my side.' Her breathing began to calm down, and she continued on across the remaining branches, this time without incident. She fairly flew down the bank, where it sloped to the boat. What if it was empty, she thought. But when she got there, it was almost worse. He was there, lying back in the boat, almost completely submerged in cold water. His head lay between two halves of a smashed bench, which was all that was keeping that end of him above the water in the boat looked dead. She set down her pack and pulled off her shoes and trousers and waded in beside the boy. She felt him. He was deathly cold, yet when she held her hand over his mouth she thought she could feel some warmth, a light breath perhaps. Jules tried not to panic as she waded back to the bank where she pulled out the blanket and laid it ready. She grabbed her knife and hurried back out. She leaned into the boat and cut away at his heavy, saturated clothing until she could get him loose of most of it. Then she got her arms under his head and shoulders until she was able to slowly turn him around and float him out of the bottom end of the boat. Then she got him to the bank and slid him up the side where she cut away what remained of his clothes. Then as carefully as she could, she dragged him up onto the blanket and rolled him into it and wrapped it tightly around him. Then she pulled and pulled until she had him back far enough from the bank at the edge of the little a little clearing and onto some dry ground. Once there, she leaned down to his lips. Relief flooded in when she was able to establish he was breathing fairly steadily, if lightly. She could feel a pulse. She thought it was slow. About forty or fifty, but she was no good at counting pulses. She pulled him onto his side and pulled one leg and arm up to stop him lying flat and gently turned his head to the same side. Then she made sure the blanket was all around him. Without pausing, she set about setting up a further shelter over his body by making a pyramid of branches from his head down to his feet and piling moss and leaves over them. Then she started gathering things for a fire near his head. She had it going in no time, using a little flint she carried in her bag. When she had a pot of water set to boiling on the fire, she sat and looked through the tinctures and oils she brought. Only then did she take the time to look at him properly. Colour seemed to be returning to his cheeks. He was sallow-skinned, with fair shaggy hair about shoulder length. His features were hard to discern while he lay on his side, unconscious. But he had a strong nose and attractive lips, she found herself thinking. She got up and checked the back of his head. There was a small wound from where he'd hit the boat bench. There was another across his cheek. She knew he might be in shock and she couldn't give him anything to drink until he regained consciousness. She'd have to watch over him carefully for however long that took. She was supposed to be back home the day after tomorrow by noon for her ceremony. But what could she do? She took up a stick and knocked the small smooth rocks she'd placed in the fire out to the edge to cool a little. When they were still warm enough, she started to place them. One she pushed through the shelter near the pit of his stomach. Others she put at the small of his back, armpits, wrists back of his neck, and between his thighs. She took the little pot of water off the fire and placed it where the steam would drift towards him. Then she dropped some eucalyptus and lavender into the water, saying an invocation, as she did so. And she went around the clearing, gathering wood for the rest of her vigil. The warm spring weather meant there were plenty of dry branches, but she took the precaution of getting the ones hanging in the trees which she knew would be drier. She dragged as many back to their wee camp as possible and started breaking them up for the fire, checking on the boy at regular intervals. When she was done stacking wood, she flopped down and realised how exhausted she was. She reached for the now cool pot and poured out its contents. Without bothering to rinse it, she set it to boil again and this time with some dried vegetables and mushrooms from her pack. She ate as soon as it was hot and then wrapped herself up in her jacket and got comfortable by the fire. She tried to stay awake, but found it was impossible. I'm leaving that there. There's another chapter coming. What I'm thinking about as I read that again for the first time in many years is how I had wanted Jules to have absorbed a lot of survival type knowledge and basic skills type knowledge through her upbringing and through the people around her, but also folk medicine and just this deeper understanding of her own power in the world to help. And it isn't that I was thinking that all those kinds of skills would be full replacements for modern medicine, for example, in terms of medicine's ability to do operations and amazing um, life-saving repair work. But something about the basic skills that mean that you don't have to turn to a professional doctor at every occasion Kind of a, a, a medical self-reliance, but also a kind of survival self-reliance that I imagine in this post-collapse era being passed down very carefully, so is that even though all sorts of things from our modern world in my imagined world may not work anymore, may not be available anymore, that there's still an abundance of the kinds of knowledge. And awareness and resources use that we had long before the industrial era and that are accessible to us now in this world as as modern humans. And actually some of the survival information I was reading up, I have a little foraging book of several little foraging books that are kind of pocket size that I can bring out. There's a little Richard Mabley one and a few others that I can bring as identification guides when I'm walking and learning and foraging, although I the best way to actually learn that, like Jules has in my story, is to have it handed down to you by somebody with a lot of knowledge because it's so much easier than trying to compare a photograph in a book than having someone point out a plant or tell you something about a, a nature sign in the wild. One of the little books that I used to carry in my pocket is an SAS Army Survivor's Guide for the British Isles. And in it, I came across a description of what to do in the case of hypothermia or cold shock and the kinds of conditions that somebody might be in. And so that's where I, I added in not just the knowledge of Getting somebody warm and having a fire, but actually the positioning of the fire near the head, and the stones came from there. the idea of putting stones on key points of the body help with a slow and careful warming, so that you minimize the risk of shock and so on when someone comes to from some kind of an immersion in water, and it's something that's used come round from a shock from immersion in water. What I also am playing with in this chapter is how much to believe your intuition. And I know that when I was writing it, my children were reading the first Harry Potters and I had in my head that I wanted to try and cultivate within today's children the idea that there is forms of something that could be called magic in the world. There's certainly is like real magic in the world. So things that we follow and pay attention to that do come to us through intuition. And I think my understanding of intuition has probably grown. For me, what intuition is, is based on something with real evidence. And it is things like our heart's intelligence, our gut intelligence, I've read, that are gut has more neurons than the brain and is the only organ that can function if severed from our brain independently of it and our heart also has neurons so when we talk about a gut intelligence or we understand the feeling of something that those are heart and gut intelligences and there's some terrific writings in one of my favorite authors that i'm sure i've mentioned on the podcast before Stephen Hardbuner about the opening of gating and the opening of those intelligences. And for me, what I also understand them to be is a kind of pattern-based intelligence an awareness of synergistic patterns and being able to pay attention to the symbolisms and the metaphors that exist at at a pattern level. So that you hear Something or you sense something and you have a recognition of that within a a really rich tapestry that you weave throughout your life of new threads of connection that make sense. And that is story making as well. It's trying to pull together threads of a story. And so I think that is where I was exploring with Jules what it was like. How far could I push it? It's a book, it's a fictional ideal. So how far could I push the idea that Jules could sense the boys coming, could sense something important in her life is coming, and could then feel enough trust in that intuition to act on it and to carry out what's going on now where she's finding Rowan and and has picked up somehow that that he was coming and then that he's in trouble. And that seems, you know, quite far-fetched. It's Find put in fantasy, but I think that I'm all the reading that I've done talks about that kind of wisdom being available to our indigenous elders and ancestors. And there's some great stories that Stephen Harold Booner shares in his writings and teachings about the kinds of things that they knew. Like one example I remember reading is that there was a desert that had Desert flora in it, and it also had a whole lot of desert rodents. I think there were some kind of gopher, a desert gopher that made burrows and tunnels in the desert. And the Western scientists at one point felt the desert flora were doing badly and that they were possibly in decline, and they decided that it was the gophers that there was either they were eating the desert flora or they decided that anyway the gophers were not good to keep and so they ordered a cull of gophers in this pristine desert environment and the native peoples of that area said don't do this it because the gophers make the rain and that seemed you know like a metaphor and a symbol and for a western trained scientist that didn't make any sense and they ignored them and they did eradicate huge populations of gophers and it stopped raining in the area. And much later, with the aid of, I think, ultrasonic uh, surveying, they discovered that there were, in fact, deep desert aquifers, whole areas and lakes of water deep under the desert, but that the tunnels of the gophers made for water capillary or respiration and that the changing temperatures of the sunny hot days and the cool nights brought out moisture through the gopher tunnels into the air and that that was in fact making rain. So I suppose from these kinds of stories that our elders knew, I imagine this in my story that there's a rekindling of this kind of knowledge where it's a pattern, it's a observed thing passed down amongst generations in metaphor so that you can pay attention and you can trust it and you can maybe use it to guide your actions in the world. And so I guess that's what I was exploring in the character of Jules and what she's able to do both in a practical and real-world skill way, understanding how to get across a river and light a fire and warm someone who's been immersed in cold water, but equally that she's paying attention to her own sensory organs and her own ability to open up to wide sensory information that could be the sound of something on the breeze, the moisture change in the air, but these really micro-messages and that through dream language, through metaphor, through visual, means that she's able to pay attention to that. I'm reading another book that is in this territory of fact and fantasy. Um, It was a book written in the 1960s called Never Cry Wolf, and I looked up a little bit about the author, and it was interesting that at the time while this book that was about uh, a biologist going and living in the Arctic tundra to study wolves that at the time were under huge amounts of uh, risk of culls and eradication, and he wrote what was in fact not all true. It wasn't all fact. It wasn't, he hadn't gone on his own into the tundra. He'd been, part of other another group of study. He had maybe not stayed the length that the book says he stayed, and yet what he wrote about, because he includes within it time spent with Inuit, and how the Inuit knew all sorts of things about the wolf that he, the Western zoologist, come to study, that knew nothing in comparison to this long, long knowledge of the wolf that the Inuit had so much so that he told stories of Inuit telling him what the wolf song meant, knowing what was passing through their territory and knowing when other Inuit were coming to visit because it wasn't in the wolf song wolves in the territory, it was people in the territory and all these kind of patterns and language and understanding. And his book in the end made a huge impact on people's attitudes towards wolves in Canada it's like a kind of Rachel Carson who wrote Silent Spring that had a similar environmental awakening impact apparently Never Cry Wolf was similar where people read this book in the 1960s and they put huge pressure on the on the, the Canadian government they put huge pressure on the Canadian government to implement more conservation to protect the wolves more and that in turn led to changes of attitudes and practices, and yet it wasn't a fully true story. So I I think there's power in playing with the edges of fact in this kind of uh, a way, and I don't know whether that's true in my story, but it's definitely what I was going for, was trying to evoke for younger readers the idea that they, might know things that they couldn't explain in a logical analytical reasoned way but that they could explain from a creative pattern in- intuition intelligence next time we'll see what happens to jules and Roan.